Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome to Murder Under the Midnight Sun 2.0. So I decided to bring the show back because of a variety of reasons, but mostly I've just missed doing it. I've missed you guys, and there are so many more cases that I want to cover, many of which are unsolved murders and missing persons cases that definitely could use some attention. So while some of the episodes I'll be releasing will be polished version of past episodes, I'll definitely be focusing more on the unsolved, as well as discussing some Alaskan historical stories. I'll also be sticking entirely in Alaska. However, if there's a non-Alaskan case I've previously covered that you're dying to listen to, let me know and we can work something out. I have been doing plenty of work in the podcast community lately, and I'm now co-hosting a new podcast called WTF Nature where myself and my best friend Jess discuss creepy and bizarre creatures of the world. There is plenty of sophomore humor, dirty jokes, and banter, so it's basically the polar opposite of this podcast. You can find the first episode on all of the podcast platforms if you'd like to give it a listen. And just so you know, some of my contact info has changed, so check the show notes if you'd like to get a hold of me. This first episode is a re-release of one of the last episodes I put out, so many of you may not have gotten a chance to hear it. It's the most infamous unsolved murder case in Alaskan history, and since it happened over 30 years ago now, it definitely deserves more attention. I hope you enjoy, and I'd love to hear from you. I do want to let you know ahead of time that this story involves a couple of children, I know that some people like to avoid those sorts of cases, so I just thought I'd let you know right up top. And tonight's case I will be discussing is the mass murder on the Saner Investor. For those of you that remember the Rochelle Waterman case I discussed way back in July, that took place in the small town of Craig, located on Prince of Wales Island. It's a pretty remote island. If I were to drive there from Anchorage, It would take about 44 hours of straight driving, and I'd have to go through Canada and get on a ferry. This case also takes place in that same area, but much further back in time. As I mentioned in that episode, Craig is one of the pretty small towns in Alaska. 
At the time of this crime, back in 1982, the town had a population of just barely over 500 people. So this crime, the number of victims, and their ages must have been incredibly shocking. Craig is one of the many fishing villages in Alaska, has a small harbor that tends to be pretty busy all summer with commercial fishermen, many of whom make a whole year's salary over just a few summer months fishing. And at the end of the fishing season in September, the rush is on to get a last good haul of the season. September 7th, 1982 was a foggy morning in the harbor and visibility was very low. It was a Monday, and there were around 150 boats in the area, ready to get their last couple of hauls in. By the time the fog cleared the next day, many fishermen were surprised to see a large saner anchored off of nearby Fish Egg Island. Some had seen it anchored in the exact same spot nearly 24 hours prior, so it was surprising that the fishermen hadn't left to go get a haul like everyone else. For those of you that don't know, a saner is a fishing boat that uses a large dragnet that are towed along in the water to catch vast amounts of fish at once. This saner was called the Investor, and it had caught the eye of many fishermen in the area. It was extremely nice, it was brand new, and it was very state-of-the-art for the time. And it was actually worth well over three-quarters of a million in 1982 dollars. On that Tuesday morning, it was eye-catching, but not only for its odd location, but the fact that it appeared to be on fire. It had been anchored about one mile out of the harbor, and since visibility had been so poor, it took until midday Tuesday for a boat in the area to notice that it appeared to be on fire. Rescuers hurried out there to tow it ashore, and when they got there, they saw that someone had left valves on the boat open and a lot of seawater had rushed aboard, but the ship had still not sunk. Once they were able to tow it to shore, a grim discovery was made. After several hours, the fire was put out and rescuers found the remains of around eight people. In the few bodies that were mostly intact, they found that they had been shot prior to the fire. Though all of the remains were never conclusively identified, they were assumed to be the bodies of the eight people known to be on board the boat. The captain, Mark Colthurst, age 28, his wife, Irene, age 28, who was pregnant at the time, their children, Kimberly and John, who were five and four, and crew members, Mike Stewart, 19, Dean Moon, 19, Jerome Keown, 19, and Chris Heyman, 18. The captain and crew of the boat were all out of the small town of Blaine, Washington, and had actually only been in Craig since just a few days prior on Sunday. The last time any of the crew had been seen or heard from was on Sunday. The captain and his family had gone out to celebrate his birthday at a restaurant in the small town of Craig, and earlier in that day, they had been seen dropping off around $30,000 worth of fish at a seafood tender. Many had seen the young family out at the restaurant that night, and others in the town had seen a couple of the deckhands out and about. However, after Sunday evening, the group hadn't been seen anywhere, and they weren't discovered dead until 35 or so hours later. It was later deduced that all eight of them had most likely been murdered not long after last being seen on Sunday night, 
They figured this out because Irene was still wearing the same outfit that she had been seen in at the restaurant. She and Mark were two of the few bodies that were intact enough to conclusively identify. During the initial investigation, some eyewitnesses were found whom had seen a man piloting the Saner skiff back and forth from the ship prior to the fire starting. There was also an eyewitness to the suspect purchasing a can of gasoline in Craig. There were witnesses on a nearby ship who had seen a man on the deck of the ship after it was unmoored from the dock and was heading out to the cove. The last people to see the man were on the dock when he pulled up in the ship-to-shore skiff and was seen exiting the skiff and heading off into town. They had assumed he was part of the boat crew and was heading off to get help for the ship that was on fire. However, he seemingly vanished off into the night. Investigators were very flabbergasted at the outset. They couldn't understand why anyone would execute this young family and their deckhands. Tragically, it was soon learned that one of the young deckhands had just started working on the boat a week prior, and another 20-year-old man had just left his position as ship cook just a few days prior to the murders, so I can't imagine how that would feel. There was, of course, a suspect that had been seen up close by several people. However, despite how small the town was, they were unable to track down a suspect that accurately fit the description they were given. A young white man, early 20s, 5'10", brown hair, and very specific, oddly shaped glasses. After looking for him in vain, investigators assumed he must have somehow escaped on a different boat or through some other means. Alaskan state troopers had quickly gotten involved and had sealed off the town as soon as they could. However, they had made a huge error right at the beginning. They were so caught up in trying to seal the town off that they had allowed the fire on the boat to reignite, which effectively destroyed much of the evidence. When the fire was put out for good, they now had a mostly pile of ash remaining in which they sifted through trying to find evidence of remains. Since investigators were never really able to properly identify all eight bodies, they initially considered the fact that perhaps not everyone had died and that maybe one or more of the deckhands were the culprits. However, all of the witnesses had the exact same description for the man seen on the boat, and it didn't match any of the young deckhands. After searching in vain for the suspect, troopers just didn't know how to proceed. Since the boat and crew were from Washington, it wasn't as though they were known or had enemies in the tiny town of Craig. The town of Blaine, Washington, where they were from, was almost as small with only around 2,000 people. Being so small, many of the residents had some connection to one or many of the victims, and the entire town was devastated by this tragedy. No one could really think of any reason why someone might have targeted these specific people. It obviously hadn't been for money because the killer had gone out of his way to cause as much damage to the expensive boat as possible. And despite the fact that these fishing boats made thousands of dollars for their hauls during the summer, most of them didn't do cash and would instead have requested the lump sum when the season was over. This would be pretty common knowledge, so 
anyone that lived in the area probably would have known this. They probably wouldn't have tried to rob a boat expecting to find cash on board. And no one knew of any illegal or illicit activities that any of the victims may have been involved in. Besides, if only one or a few of them were the intended targets, the killer would have picked the stupidest possible way of trying to take them out. It is possible that the boat had been targeted primarily because of how expensive it looked. My thoughts are maybe someone had expected to find things to steal on board and had murdered the crew in a panic when they returned unexpectedly. But then again, no scenario really seems to perfectly fit the facts of the crime. Another thing that was extremely puzzling about this case was just how either brazen or completely crazy the suspect seemed to be. He had been seen on the boat by many witnesses, and he had seemingly gone out of his way to talk to many of them, so it didn't seem like he had a single worry about getting caught, and he was setting it on fire right in the middle of the day. At that point, you kind of have to wonder, is this just a disorganized lunatic, or is it the opposite, someone that is so confident in their plan and so totally lacking in emotion that they're able to leave the scene of eight murders while remaining completely cool as a cucumber and making small talk with passerby. The timing of the crime was either coolly calculated or complete blind luck, because at the week it happened, it's entirely possible that many boats in the area had left before the murders had been discovered. There may have been some more witnesses, but since it took nearly two whole days for the bodies to be discovered, troopers hadn't had time to completely seal off the town before many of the seasonal people had left. As the investigation dragged on and no answers were forthcoming, it certainly seemed like it may be the latter. Whomever the suspect was may have just had the perfect escape plan because he really seemed to have vanished into thin air. It's worth noting that obviously since it's an island, there's no road access, so the suspect would have had to either catch a ride out of there on a small plane, on the ferry, or on one of the many boats in the area. Since no one had reported seeing the guy on any of those modes of transportation, it seemed possible that he had either a partner or someone willing to transport him out of there that was at least willing to not ask any questions and not report him. Days went by and the season ended. Craig began to quiet down for the long winter, but both towns were heavily feeling the loss of the victims. They were also very haunted and worried that a murderer might be living among them in sheep's clothing. The weeks went by, turned into months, another summer arrived and things went along as usual. The case was growing colder by the day. Suddenly, it was nearly two years after the murders, and another summer was in full swing. But just when it seemed like the investigation was fated to be a cold case, it started to heat up a little. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
In the interim, they had ever so slowly been dwindling down the massive list of suspects. They had originally created it by contacting all of the boats known to be in the area at the time of the murders and getting crew lists and other relevant information. They started with a couple of hundred people and over the course of those two years managed to winnow the list down to just three names. Based on witnesses, circumstantial evidence, and a connection, almost exactly two years to the day of the murders, they arrested a suspect named John Kenneth Peel. He was 24 years old at the time of his arrest and was from Bellingham, Washington, which is just near Blaine. He was actually known by the Colthurst family and by many in Blaine. He had actually worked on a boat for Mark about a year prior and been fired. He had a reputation by many as a drug and alcohol abuser. Allegedly, he had tried to get rehired on Mark's new boat in the summer of 1982, but Mark had refused, and many thought that this may have been what sparked him to go murder them. Many had really thought of him as an obvious suspect from the very beginning due to his known ill will towards the captain and the fact that he was known to be without a doubt docked in Craig at the time of the murders. The investigators, however, had wanted to make sure that they checked every box before arresting anyone. Along with local suspicions, John's picture had also been identified in photo lineups by several of the eyewitnesses. So by this point, they were feeling a little confident. However, it would turn out that they were right to be slow in making that arrest. While many cheered it on, thinking he had obviously done it, many were beyond mad at the investigators for even broaching the theory that it may have been one of the deckhands that had done the murders. It was a small community in Blaine, and everyone was connected. John Peel was actually connected to the Colthurst family in other ways than just working for Mark. Mark's sister Lori later reported that John had once dated their sister. So while many in the community were happy that a suspect had been arrested, others were just shattered at the thought that it may really be one of their own locals. John was soon arraigned in Bellingham and charged with eight counts of first-degree murder as well as some arson charges. While many thought they could at least breathe a sigh of relief with the suspect arrested, the journey was far from through. No one could have predicted at this point just how long and arduous this court case would turn out to be. In fact, it would become the longest and most expensive trial in Alaskan history, and I think it still holds that record. It would actually take until 1986 for the trial to even begin. It was in Ketchikan, a larger fishing town in southeast Alaska. The trial would be remembered for the vicious way that the prosecution and defense went at each other. Everyone seemed to feel a personal stake and connection to the outcome in this case. From beginning to end, it would last over seven months and cost around $2 million. The defense used various tactics, including mentioning that two of the deckhands' remains had never been identified and that it may have been one of them. They also tried to argue that the Colt Hearst had been involved in drug trafficking and the murders had been related to that. However, there was absolutely no evidence to support this, so they appeared to be grasping at straws. 
After a long and stressful trial, the jury was finally excused to begin their deliberations. However, after many, many long days, the jury finally revealed that they were completely deadlocked. There was no unanimous decision and no one was willing to budge on their decision. The judge, unfortunately, had to call a mistrial. However, the state refused to give up and decided to do a retrial. The second trial would take place in Juneau in 1988. By the time it began, John had gotten married and turned 27. The retrial was also long and would last over three months. This time around, the defense refused to call any witnesses, saying that they essentially found the proceedings so ridiculous that they refused to dignify it by putting any witnesses back on the stand. The trial would end up costing around three quarters of another million dollars. Since the first trial, John had been living back in Bellingham, and despite many in the community who had suspected him originally, it seemed as though by this point he had rallied quite a few people to his side. At the end of another long, hard trial, the jury went out. They deliberated for three whole days and finally had reached a decision. They came back in and revealed that they had found the defendant not guilty on all charges. Jurors refused to talk to reporters, but it was well known that the prosecutor had told them there was no evidence of a motive and that the investigation had been botched from the first day. Now, let me repeat that. This was the prosecutor who said that. Not exactly a great prosecution plan, if you ask me. So, it's now spring 1988, five and a half years since the tragic deaths of eight people, and there was still no resolution to the case. You might think this would be the last we'd see of John Peel, but nope. In 1990, Peel filed a lawsuit with the state of Alaska stating wrongful arrest and imprisonment, requesting $175 million. This lawsuit was filed partially based on a trooper document from 1984, in which it stated that Peel was the only suspect. He knew every person on the boat but one, and that he was known to have been the last person to see at least two of the victims. His alibi was that he was asleep at 8 p.m., and there were no witnesses to verify it. However, the lawsuit is based on just a few words in this long document, in which the trooper who wrote it stated that Despite all the circumstantial evidence, there's no real case without physical evidence and possibly a confession. So, the lawyer argued, since there was no real case, as admitted by a trooper years prior, his client shouldn't have been arrested and tried. After several years in the court, the lawsuit was finally settled in 1997. The state refused to admit any wrongdoing, but offered a compromise settlement of $900,000. So for those of you playing along at home, that's around three and a half million dollars, 15 years, and absolutely no justice for these victims, including an unborn baby, two precious little children, their parents who were basically just starting their dream life, and four teenagers who were just doing their job. It's truly a shocking story, and I personally was incredibly surprised I'd never really heard of it until I started researching for this case. However, many have never forgotten 
and are still hoping for answers someday. Many years after the trials were all over, a journalist named Bethany Rutherford became interested in the case and decided to do an art exhibit about it. She traveled to several cities, interviewing hundreds of people who knew the victims or whom were involved in the case, and collected photos and paintings in memory of them. In 2015, the exhibit was put together in Craig, and since then has traveled to other parts of Alaska, as well as Oregon and Washington. The exhibit is called Lost at Sea, and is intended to keep the memory of the victims alive. In Blaine, as in many fishing towns, they have memorials and events dedicated to those lost at sea. Every year in Blaine, there's an event called the Blessing of the Fleet, where the names of those lost at sea are read aloud and commemorated. Though these eight victims weren't lost at sea in the traditional sense, they are metaphorically placed in this group, and every year at the ceremony, their names are read aloud, and Mark's sister, Lori, is always there to lay down a flower for each of the victims. Though lost, they will never be forgotten. Thank you for listening to this episode. My apologies for the brevity, but it was a story that needed to be told. It was an upsetting case to learn about, but I really felt it necessary to get the story back out there because it's sad when these cases go so cold that they're just never mentioned anywhere again. And it's been 35 years. I feel like the families and friends of the victims truly deserve answers. I'd be interested to know what you guys think about this case, what you think about the trials and the suspect, and I guess if you think he's guilty or not. Kind of hard to say based on the small amount of evidence that you know, but I'd be interested to hear your feedback anyways.